stories and the people behind the stories. The shock doctrine, what I'm calling the shock doctrine, is a philosophy of power. It's a doctrine of domination. This is radio worth supporting and you make a difference. Visit kpft.org to view our complete program schedule. Give feedback on our shows or pledge online. This is listener-sponsored, commercial-free Pacifica Radio, 90.1 KPFT Houston. You are tuning into Latino Politics and News with Tony Diaz on 90.1 FM, KPFT, Houston, Texas. The era of Hispandering is over. Back in the day, cuando era un niño, someone in the crowd might have looked at me fail. With an evil eye, abuela called it ojo. Reached in the fridge and took out a huevo, sign of the cross with the egg as a remedy. Rub it on my body to remove the bad energy. Pray out loud so we can all hear it. Egg underneath the bed to absorb the evil spirits. The wind blew, the house shook. I lay back with candles, the rosary, and the sage plant. Sana, sana, fix vapor rub on my chest. Fell asleep and woke up in a puddle of sweat. Felt better after shaking the omen. Zone it, floated on the earth that I'm roaming. In the Americas, some call it folklore. Up well, I broke the egg, now I'm free from all. Chasing bloodline to, to the, the test. test When one is jealous of, of another success Family, friends, associates, and neighbors Can all result to bevel when chasing after paper Friends and enemies, good and bad energy Mal de ojo, affecting culture, psychology Bad vibes can damage you and your circle Wrong intentions from so-called friends can hurt you Watch the life you're living, keep them at a distance They'd rather see you missing than healthy and uplifted So you get this chance in this life to make a difference that surround you will affect conditions living space positive how i live yes i try to weather stormy gray day our outside sky blue work through the pain from the out and the inside embrace the joy and avoid the evil eye Tuning in to Latino Politics and News. This is Tony Diaz. Today, we welcome back to Houston, Texas. Of course, through the magic of telephony, one of our very own. He is a product of Houston communities and has been a big part of a lot of our social justice and intellectual movements here. His name is Russell Contreras. Of course, he is Chicano Legacy. A lot of his family is still involved with our movement, and his sister is Poet Laureate at this time. So there was some serious reading going on in that household. He is now the Justice and Race Reporter at Axios, and we're going to talk to him about his most recent piece titled The Elusive Political Power of Mexican Americans Should Not Be Controversial. However, most outlets... And I mean 99.9% besides us <laughs> typically speak about our community, the Latino vote, etc., 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 in strictly general terms that in the worst dehumanize us and in the best case situations give very inaccurate portrayals of what's really going on on the ground in our communities. This particular piece establishes some important facts that we're going to break down. One is that there are only three Mexican-American senators as of a recent appointment as one, even though the majority of the Latino population is Mexican or Mexican-American. And in comparison, there's also and has been three 
Cuban-American senators, even though their population is about one-eighteenth of the size of Mexican-Americans. Again, you can bring emotion into this, or we can finally start having a logical discourse about our community. And we're going to get even more radical. We're going to have two Latinos who are experts on Latinos talking about Latinos right there. <laughs> we, have, we have shattered the status quo, and we're going to do it throughout the show because that is what we do. That's what we've been doing, and this is the only real way to really shed light on what's really going on so that we can proceed towards equity and really make this a place where our communities can thrive. Hey, you expect nothing less than that. want to give a shout-out to our crew Rodrigo Bravo is mixing this show inside out, upside down, and making it sound smooth. Also, Gabriela Vasquez is one of our new interns who is also out in the community. Roxana Guzman helps us also with our signage and deep thoughts. And one also thank Nathan Noble, who has been helping us behind the scenes as well. This is Tony Diaz. You're listening to our show on 90.1 FM KPFT, Houston's Community Station. If you have the ability, please go to kpft.org, click on the donation link, and make a donation in the name of Latino Politics and News so that we can bring you this type of cutting-edge programming that I promise you no one else has now, and everyone will follow suit later. That's what we're about. We want to make sure that we are conveyed as intellectuals, and we want to humanize our community and everybody else. Stay tuned for some of that. You're tuning into Latino Politics and News. This is Tony Diaz. Today we have a one-hour special focusing on a recent piece written by our own from Houston, Texas, one of the founding members of Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say, and a major national voice right now, Russell Contreras with Axios. And we're talking about his piece that just came out, The Elusive political power of Mexican-Americans. First of all, Russell, welcome home, at least through radio. And uh, this this is, of course, your old stomping ground. So it's great to have you back on the air and at least your voice here in Houston, Texas. 
It's good to be back and good to be with you. And first of all, congratulations getting on board at Axios. And tell the people your exact beat that you're writing in. Well, I am the race and justice reporter at Axios. It's a newly created position. We're looking at how race plays in uh, a role and systemic racism plays a role in the current United States and how the current administration is dealing with issues around race and inequality. Uh, I came from the Associated Press after 12 years there in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and in Boston. Um, so this new role at Axios uh, is, a, is an a position that we we try we're trying to really look at race at all facets from the justice department to justice with the lowercase J to housing, health care, you name it. We're looking at and trying to dissect how race plays a role in inequality and policy. So at Axios, we write stories in a smart brevity format, meaning that these stories are meant for your mobile phone. You get quick grabs of news. We try to make you smarter, faster, and we try to give you as much information as possible in a small spot so that you can leave with a better understanding of the world and better understanding what's going on in this country with race. And I really admire the approach and anything empower our community because we need these facts. Let's first of all point out that the fact that we've got two Latinos who are experts on Latinos talking about Latino demographics. Already we've created some sort of you know, <laughs> vortex and matrix. So this is unique in and of itself. Yeah, one from uh, Chicago who now lives in Houston and one from Houston who now lives in Albuquerque. Uh, and we've been all over the, the country. So this is, this is unique. And what I also love is that we're bringing to the table and the airwaves and in print a view from the community so we're gonna keep calling it community cultural capital some folks may not have caught on to that outside of our movement but they're gonna because we're trying to work with folks that will quantify what's actually going on in our communities your numbers do that let's break down some of the facts from your piece let's call it the three and three conundrums let's go over that and why is that so mind-blowing when you look at the percentage of the U.S. population right now, you have roughly 60, 61 million Latinos in the United States, right? But 60% of that population are people of Mexican ancestry. So we're talking about Mexican-Americans like you and I, and we're talking about Mexican immigrants. So the vast majority of Latinos in the U.S. are Mexican. Um, that's 11% of the population. So 11% of the U.S. population are people of Mexican descent, right? So when we're talking about Latinos, it should be, theoretically, Mexican-Americans who are centered in this discussion. But yet the way our political structures have developed over time, Mexican-Americans have been marginalized. When you lump all Latinos in one group, when we put this umbrella group, but if you want to call it Hispanic, Latino, Latino slash ah. That's a different show. Different episode. <laughs> yeah. But nonetheless, when you do that, what you're trying to do and what was attempted during President Johnson and later President Nixon was to try to get these smaller populations together for a political force. And and you have to remember the Mexican American civil rights, the modern Mexican American civil rights was still new. There'd always been movements, but up to this point, uh, engaging in mainstream politics was relatively new, and their numbers were small in Houston and Los Angeles in San Francisco. So there was an attempt to make coalitions with Latinos in New York right, and in Chicago, and that mainly involved Puerto Ricans. But what we saw over time is if you lumped those with, who had the most access to power and funds became the ones, became the loudest voices in this group of Latinos. And in this case, it would, it would be Cuban-Americans. They came at, at a different time and had a different history than Mexican-Americans and came with more capital and cultural capital. They were educated in colleges. They, were edu they had access to wealth. 
for Mexican Americans up to this point, we, we still had a very low college attendance rate. I mean, we're just talking about the, the World War II generation going through college in the GI Bill. That was the first generation. And now you had the Chicano movement. We were still catching up. But yet they, because you lumped them on all this and this umbrella group of Latinos, they became, um, they, had a, they have an oversized voice. So if you look at today, if you look at just the U.S. Senate, and we'll get to that in a minute, you had, until recently, three Cuban-Americans in the U.S. Senate, though Cuban-Americans only represent two million people in the United States. Mexican-Americans, until this session, only had one senator. So although we're 37 million strong, Cuban-Americans are two million strong, they had more U.S. senators. And that, if anything else, discussing the disparity of power is the most telling example, just discussing the numbers. And I think what's really important is that this is the beginning of a longer, more profound discussion. You are centering these two facts in the United States Senate, where there's 100 members, three of them have been Cuban-American, and just recently... Mexican-Americans have gotten three senators as well. Let's, I don't want to complicate this issue because you've broken down many facts that all add to this. But typically, especially on, and our friends on liberal media and mainstream cable news lump us all together in a certain way. Uh, those in right-wing media lump <laughs> us together in very directly negative ways, but I will point this out. And liberal media, and, and liberal media, to be you know, to be fair, they they lump us all into the same, the same same umbrella too, as well, without without the nuances. What I will hear during every election cycle are very specific demographic breakdowns of the white vote. So you'll hear things like, well suburban white homeowners over 50 are voting this way. That's really specific. Then you get to Latinos, they lump everybody in. By the way, let's point out why the Padilla appointment is complicated too, because that may not last. Yeah, we've only gotten to the third Mexican-American senator senator in the United States um, by appointment. And so Alex Padilla was appointed after um, Vice President uh, Kamala Harris was elected, and she had this seat in California. So it was up to the governor of California to appoint the next senator, and he he appointed Alex Padilla, becoming him becoming the first Mexican American senator in California's history. And as Gustavo Ariano from the LA Times likes to point, it would have been very difficult for someone like him to win election outright because Latinos have a very hard time winning statewide office in California though they represent such a large portion of the statewide vote. And there are many reasons for that. Uh, one, uh, more telling than anything else, is that we lack this hardcore fundraising structure that other populations do in the United States. Look at the Cuban-Americans. They have a robust fundraising structure and outreach program. Um, so do African-Americans. And so do, you know, white liberals and white conservatives. They have this. It's very hard to, for Mexican-Americans to tap into it, especially because when you're running for office and when you get your start, whether it's school board, Congress, dog catcher, you name it, we come from poor districts that are majority Mexican-American, and that's how we excel. Very seldom do Mexican-Americans cross over and win general elections where they have to appeal to to a multifaceted population. So for Alex Padilla to reach this point, yes, he did get to that point quietly, winning various offices and statewide offices and so forth, um, but he had to do it um, while he coming up with other Mexican-Americans who faltered for whatever reasons, he got to this point as the lone wolf, as the exception. And then he got into Senate, he got appointed, and will have to face re-election and face voters from people who are angry, who wanted another demographic representative there. So, yeah, he got there. But that doesn't mean he's going to stay. And so while he got there, you also had Ben Ray Lujan in New Mexico who got elected 
in from the state with the largest percentage of Hispanics in the United States. But yet New Mexico hasn't had a Hispanic senator in a generation. Wow. They haven't had one since since 1978, 1979. So for a whole generation, for whatever reason, there hasn't been a Mexican-American senator from the state of New Mexico. The most Mexican, I dare say it, state in, in the country. They may say Hispanic. Let's be honest. It's Mexican-American. And there are many reasons for that. White conservatives had a position. White liberals had a position. And they were not going to give it up. When Hispanics threatened to run for those positions, there was always excuses. If you're not ready, there's someone already there who fights for our issues. Give it time. But that give it time took 40 years. I mean, if you think about it, I was, what, four or five years old? When the last time New Mexico had uh, a senator, <laughs> and, now I'm four, and now I'm 47. Wow. So most of my adult life, I never saw one for New Mexico, even though I'm from Houston. And we never had a Mexican-American senator. It wasn't until Ken Salazar was elected from, Cal- uh, from Colorado that we had one for the first time in, in decades. Um, so this is telling. And this is a commentary on the systemic racism and the disparities in political power that are facing Mexican-Americans compared to Cuban-Americans. Now, when you look at Puerto Rican, they don't have a, a senator at all, right? And they're the second largest population. They have uh, more representatives in the House of Representatives. But even then, Cuban-Americans have more um, elected officials in the House than Puerto Ricans, though Puerto Ricans are almost twice as high. For the second half of the show, I do want to just complicate the issue even more. I'm going to resist talking about and bringing in our Puerto Rican brothers and sisters. We're, we're going to do in the second half only because I want to run back to these very specific facts that we must fight to put on the table because all the issues we're bringing up revolve around these facts. And what happens is non-experts are going to throw in other issues that do do not really have a role in the calculus evolving from the fact that there are only three Mexican-American U.S. senators at this time, while there have been three Cuban-American senators for a while. The size of our population as Mexican-Americans works against us. We're too big to find. Texas is massive. California is massive. However, you can find the cogent base of Cuban-Americans in Florida. And they've learned to organize around that. That's not a criticism. That's just a fact. Is that fair to say? That is fair to say, but it's also fair to say that they have been able to leave their South Florida base and be successful. Look at Ted Cruz in Texas. Look at Bob Menendez in New Jersey. And we can point to examples of Cuban-Americans winning mayoral races outside of that. Uh, in other cities. Now, let's be fair. Mexican-Americans have a right to run for mayor of Miami, but nobody in their right mind would ever consider <laughs> a Mexican-American would not even have a chance to win a mayoral race in Miami. It just would never happen. And I think it's perception about race, perception about um, political leaning, perception that this is not your base. But yet Cuban-Americans have been able to leave South Florida, right? And go to places like Houston and like Texas. Uh, and if you remember, we had Orlando Sanchez, who was a city councilor mm-hmm. in Houston, who was Cuban-American. And he won an at-large race and ran for mayor and was a, a viable candidate. Right? This cannot happen for Mexican-Americans going elsewhere where they're not the large majority of the population. This, the races and history shows that that can't happen yet. Let, let, can it happen in the future? I think so. We do have to at least allude to some of the history because, as you pointed out in your in your article, Cuban Americans, because of the Cuban Adjustment Act, became citizens sooner and could vote sooner than Mexican Americans, who were basically disenfranchised when this land that I'm co- talking to you from went from being Mexico to being Texas, and there were lynchings, there were dispossession of land and dispossession of power. So you've got generations of Tejanos that were disenfranchised. Yeah, University of, of Houston Political Science, our, our friend Professor Cortina, uh, Cortina was very clear. And he said, look, I mean, 
one difference that we have to point out is that Cuban Americans had a different entry point into our political system than Mexican Americans. They arrived after the revolution. They come here and they're granted immediate, they're given immediate protections and pathway to citizenship almost immediately. They are Cold War refugees during the Cold War. Mexican Americans, since 1848, they were granted citizenship, but from that point on, whether you were in Texas, California, Colorado, or New Mexico, they were not given citizenship. So they were granted it as almost a promise, but because of Jim Crow, be because of racial terror, be because of racism, uh, you name it. Mexican Americans never were, were able to enjoy the privilege of U.S. citizenship, much less vote, even in Texas. You know, my family up until the 1940s couldn't vote because you had a Texas white primary and Democratic primary. So you had to be white to vote. At then was the only political party in Texas. So we couldn't even vote. So it took you had to we were on par with African Americans and being denied the right to vote, being denied the right to serve on juries, being denied to even go into certain restaurants and so forth. In Texas, California, New Mexico, Jim Crow wore a sombrero. Mm-hmm. And he wore a sombrero really proudly and kept us in this subservient second class citizenship. Cuban Americans did not have this. Yes, they struggled linguistically. They struggled with English a language-only laws that they had to endure, but they were politically powerful enough to fight that, their own xenophobia, the, the xenophobia they faced, and overcome that. But they did not have to deal with this legacy of segregation, even though they migrated to one of the most southern states in the United States, who had its own history of racial segregation. Mm. They were able to o- overcome that because of the Cold War. So you had two distinct populations. One, that had to deal with generations decades, if not centuries, of racial terror and racial discrimination, another coming at a unique time in American history, and when they was able to capitalize that with, with the intent of trying to do what they could back in the island of Cuba to overthrow it. Now, I know we were going to talk about overseas, <laughs> but it's important that they were organized in the United States with that, that agenda and that goal. And that affected domestic policy going forward is when these two groups together, you had competing uh, interest in trying to seek a common goal. But then the United States lumped them all and said, you all are Latinos. You all have, you kind of look alike. You all have similar Spanish sounding surnames. You all speak Spanish, even though we all know that we can't even understand each other in Spanish. (laughs) Mexicans speak very slow. We have different words, different histories, and it, inevitable, it clashed. And whenever you bring up these differences, you, the one bringing this point up, are the enemy. You are trying to divide, but you're mainly pointing out divisions that are there. You're pointing out the scars and the blood. You're not doing the cutting. You're just pointing out that, look, this hurts, and we need to talk about it. This is a good segue. We're going to take a break, and we're going to come back for part two where we do broaden this issue, but I also want to tell people this is not to start a beef with any of our different Latino groups. We love every branch of the Latino family tree. However, on a personal note, I will not tolerate discourse that doesn't allow facts, and we're merely dropping facts, and we must demand that our community be perceived as intellectuals and that we start talking about our community as intellectuals breaking down the systematic racism that has really kept us apart. And if this is too opaque or abstract for you, yo, we're talking to you from Houston, Texas, where we've never elected a Latino mayor, even though we're 45% of the population at least. And at this time, out of 15 Houston City Council members, only one is Latino. Hey, you're listening to Latino politics and news. This is what we do. This is what you expect. We're at Russell Contreras. We're going to take a short break. We're going to come back. And now we're really going to get even more complex and deep for you. Gasolina premium. Esta noche de travesuro. El Latino, la baby está dura. Desde los tiempos de aventura. Carteras son alma y siempre andan en pintura. Siempre se enchula Tú estás buscando, baby, que yo me pegué Y 
que ese culo te apriete. Yo me siento notado y a pasar a la T. Y muy viejo con la punto 10. Yo, Kim, baby, tú eres traviesa. Pero si en mi camino te atraviesa, te voy a devorarle a cabeza. Y le doy con fortaleza. Trasero grande por naturaleza. Otra piedra me encontré por la maleza. Muévete heavy como un stripper. Dale, mami, no te quites, no es interesa. Pero no le hables si no tienes ticket. No falla que ponga un cachón y que las demás se piquen. Está soltera y está buscando que le aplique. Si te vas con otro, mami, no soy rencoroso. Me verás pasándote por el frente como con ocho. La nota me tiene viendo la disco en los muchos en el VIP. Quería darme un blow yo. Ey, quiere que le dé sin pena. Ey, si no me la sé, ya no quema. A las cinco dos en el sistema. Pa' capotear siempre se pone en mi cadena. Me pongo sabroso, cariñoso, te lo to Latino Politics and News. This is Tony Diaz. We are joined by Russell Contreras, homegrown talent over at Axios now. We're talking about his article, 
the elusive political power of Mexican-Americans. He has shared it on our airwaves today. We're going to rebroadcast that again. And first half of the show, we talked about the facts that that article established, the most important facts that will lead to even deeper conversations is the fact that Latinos are a massive population here in, in America, yet only this year have we achieved three U.S. senators. On the flip side, Cuban Americans represent a much smaller population, and they've achieved three senators beforehand. From there, we can break down the nuances of how that has occurred, and I want to stress, these are facts. The fact that this may or may not be controversial or people get upset by this, that shows that we need logical discourse and we need to demand it and continue to grow on this. Now we're going to open up this issue from many sides because there's actually a lot that goes into it. And I think especially the history of our community is at stake. Let's do this, though. Let's talk about the roles of these particular senators. So I'd like to point out why this is important. Senators are really powerful right now. If there's only 100 senators and we've got a 50-50 split, household names like Romney have become household names because if they vote up or down, they play with the whole calculus. Uh, McCain was powerful because he was that one vote that you couldn't pinpoint. And to be one of those votes is critical. We don't have time. No, let's talk about Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico, I don't even know what a commonwealth is. Okay, I guess they're a colony. I guess they're not. They don't have senators. If they had senators, you know their power grid would not be maligned the way it does. So tell us a little bit more about the role of senators. Why did you pinpoint that specific level of government and why is it so important? Well, senators, they're a gateway for presidential candidates. They're a gateway to those for nominees to the cabinet. And so what I noticed over time is every time this administration comes in and there's pressure to have a diverse cabinet, even President Trump was faced with this, President Obama, President Clinton, they all say, come in and say, I want a cabinet that looks like America. Trump didn't say that, but eventually he was pressured to get a Latino cabinet member. Um, each time this happens, Inevitably, a Cuban-American is elevated to a cabinet-level position. More so that if you look at the history, Mexican-Americans and Cuban-Americans who have been cabinet leaders, they're almost equal if you look at the numbers, right? Look at the current administration. You have a cabinet nominee to the Department of Health. He's Mexican-American. You have a cabinet nominee, or now a cabinet appointee, who is Puerto Rican Department of Education. And you also have a Cuban American who is going to be, who is now the secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. So the other three uh, cabinet members, you have a Mexican American, Cuban American, and Puerto Rican. Equal three. Now that may be good in terms of optics and say, okay, we got three Latinos, but is that parity? And the reason why we look at the Senate is because the Senate has been a feeder to these national positions. So when people are looking, when a new administration comes in and they say, okay, I need a Latino, I need a, a number of Latinos, two Latinos in my cabinet members, who do you got? Well, you don't have any Mexican-American candidates because there's no pipeline. We haven't reached and shown, given the opportunity, we have very few senators and we have very few governors. They keep looking at New Mexico. New Mexico is the only state in the United States history that's had three Mexican-American governors mm. in a row. Governor Bill Richardson. Governor Susana Martinez, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham. And each time when they were up and coming, they said these are future presidential slash secretaries in the United States in some departments. And each time they failed to get it for whatever reason, some by their own doing, some by political infighting. But if that feeder just in New Mexico hasn't resulted in a cabinet position, then Bill Richardson had, had held cabinet positions before, right? but never after the government, if that fails to happen, then you have the major pipeline to feed into these national positions just does not exist. On the other hand, Cuban-Americans, because they've had a national voice and a national platform, they do have a pipeline. So you can pull ML Martinez into a cabinet position, right? 
You could pull a Marco Rubio into a cabinet position should a Republican win after Biden. You have opportunities. And that's why the Senate is essential. And so are Governor seat inviting uh, a national voice. Now, to tell you, not only does this, this adversity affect, uh, affect Mexicans, but it also affects Puerto Ricans because they, have too, have not had the access to that pipeline. They have, sit, they have people in the House, and they have state legislators, but there's never been a Puerto Rican mayor of New York, right? This is, this is the, where the birthplace of the New York New York Poets Cafe, right? They've had, come very close. They've had elected a, uh, a position. I talked to the other day, uh, yesterday, our Richie Torres, the first black Latino gay man to be elected out of New York, and he is still unique. You know, we, we, he almost joked that he's a unicorn because he's one of the few <laughs> black Latinos to ever be in Congress. That's still unique in 2021. Wow. So if you can't even get over that barrier in the U.S. House, how are you going to do that in the U.S. Senate, much less a governor? So there's access to national political power right now are closed because of the systemic barriers that are in place right now. I also want to stress, we're not going to fall into the trap that the power structure wants where we're beefing with our Cuban-American brothers and sisters, our Puerto Rican brothers and sisters. That is not the case. That's not what we're here doing. We're not blaming them. We're pointing out that this the system then that has disenfranchised some of us and for our community to be empowered – we need to be more specific in the breakdown of this demographic because it has not helped edify all of us. Ted Cruz turns around and is was land blasting and destroying DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. It seems then that that would be an issue that a Latino representative should should support other Latinos in, especially DACA, but that has not been the case. So, so what are some of the complexities of what these senators are supposed to represent or not? No, when you mentioned Ted Cruz, I mean, he comes at it with a different entry point than the other two Cuban-American senators, Marco Rubio and, and Bob Menendez. Now, each one of them embraces their hyphen, so to speak, a different way. Ted Cruz uh, has his own interpretation, and it comes in conflict with, say, a Republic, former Republican President George W. Bush. He had a different strategy in reaching out to Latinos, and you can say whatever you want about the former president, but he did seek a diverse cabinet, and he did have Mexican-American representation in his cabinet and on his advisory staff. Al Gonzalez was one of his closest friends. Um, Marco Rubio also came of age um, in the second generation of Cuban-American Republicans looking to continue their legacy. And Bob Menendez comes from a more progressive side in New Jersey. So all three have different interpretations and different experiences with their cuteness, right? Just as Mexi Mexican-Americans do. I will say that diversity did, um, did come into conflict during the 2016 election when Marco Rubio was making fun of Ted Cruz's Spanish and basically says, you don't even know what you're talking about, and making kind of joking at him, like, you're not Cuban enough. And then Ted Cruz responded with some a phrase in Spanish, kind of say, oh, yeah, I do. And it was this, it was this awkward, hilarious moment between two Cuban-Americans basically showing, uh, showcasing uh, their experiences that are different, that a lot of Cuban-Americans could relate to. Some could relate with Marco Rubio was saying. Some could relate with, Ted, with who Ted Cruz was saying. So that is not unique. What is unique? is that one of these individuals can renounce a citizenship of a former place. <laughs> well, this, this could never happen for Mexican-American. I mean, if a Mexican-American was born in Mexico but was somehow declared a U.S. citizen for whatever reason, right, and was eligible to vote, uh, it, it just would create a conundrum, right? John McCain is a Panama Canali, as they say. He was born in, the, the, in this area of Panama, but is a U.S. citizen. That could never happen with you and I. It, it would just – our bodies are too foreign. It's too um, too complex to complain to, to – to explain to mainstream audiences that we belong to begin with if we're born in Houston or Chicago, much less in a foreign land. 
So there is a sense of privilege that we must acknowledge that allows certain folks to have these experiences and denounce and then continue to move on. I will say what was interesting in the 2016 election when Marco Rubio was running and Ted Cruz was running, nobody created a Viva Cruz club. <laughs> nobody created a Viva Rubio club. And, you know, this is something I asked the late Ben Martinez. Uh, Benny Martinez here in LULAC was a LULAC activist. Legendary. Long time in Houston, Texas. Legendary. He helped organize the JFK visit. I asked him before, you know, his, his passing. It's like, why hasn't, why isn't there a Viva Rubio club? Why isn't there a Viva Cruz club? And he says, it's just a different time, man. It's just the, you know, it's just the, the excitement is not there um, that we had it with JFK. It's like we're not united and have the same goals. And then before he, he ended up, he was like, you know, maybe maybe we should create a club for them. I'm not going to say I vote for them for him, but maybe we should. Maybe that's the right thing. Kind of like reminiscing, like, maybe we should do it. But then he ended, he's like, but I'm not going to organize it. <laughs> you know, it's got to come from the people. The people themselves have to organize it. First of all, the candidates have to sign off on it. And then there has to be a groundswell for that to happen. And it just, just did not happen. And that just shows you that this whole idea of a pan-Latino identity is much more of a myth than it is reality. Because if it was as strong as people said, say it is, they would have formed those clubs in 2016, and it didn't happen. I also would add, and, and this is my take on this, some of these candidates have manipulated the vagueness of the definition to their benefit because the other reason that there weren't Viva Cruz clubs is because I've never heard Ted Cruz say, I am proud to be Latino. And of course, I would give him some leeway and let him say, I'm proud to be Hispanic. I've never heard him say, I'm proud to be Cuban American. I've heard him talk about his father's experience, but he hasn't gone there. And I, I would theorize that it's to keep the Republican base and because he's not familiar with the community base of Latinos. So he wants to have the best of both worlds. So he's actually benefiting from some of those issues and what he's not suffered. And again, this is not to say, you know, I got some Cuban American brothers and sisters that are down with us and I'm down with them, et cetera. And, and we can all have different views Obviously, you don't have to vote one way if you're Latino. That's that's silliness to, to imply that is an insult to my intelligence. We are. I am pointing out specific actions by Ted Cruz. What I would say, too, is that in complete contrast, we may not have time to talk about all the voter suppression rampant in Texas that would benefit a candidate who runs on the Republican side and does not cater to the typical issues that the Mexican American community would would expect. And here in Texas, we've done a lot of shows on this. I don't want to go completely into it. Maybe we might. But even recently, the whole debate over counting mail-in ballots or not, that was to disenfranchise. Uh, the number of places that you can drive up and vote, that's the way to disenfranchise. And even the way that you can or can't register to vote in Texas, in my opinion— and in many, in many, in the findings of research, have disenfranchised this huge population of Mexican Americans to vote, and then it's this weird, it's this weird cycle. But again, you were pointing out the historical perspective of some of the characteristics involved with these different candidates, and I will give a shout out to to Ben uh, to Menendez. He was actually pivotal in pushing for the Latino Museum. So, you know. Hats off to when the Latinos work together. Your article points out the discrepancies in some of the ways that the Latino vote is approached. What things have we not touched on, Russell? Because there's a lot to, you're an expert in Mexican American history. You've got some great research in the article. I've got plenty I want to say, but I don't want to miss any particular nuances we haven't touched on. I will say this. Mexican-Americans, because of their history of the United States, they're the oldest population, continuing population in the United States. They have been responsible throughout the years of filing the lawsuits, challenging, 
pushing for civil rights legislation, um, fighting discrimination for more than 100 years, right? And yes, it is just when other groups come here and benefit from that. I, I don't think they were doing it just for Mexican-Americans at the time. They were doing it, if you look at John J. Herrera and Gus Garcia mm-hmm. and all these lawyers, so- they were doing it because they believed in equality overall. Yes, it hurt them personally, but they had a longer view and a more romantic view about human rights. I will say, Mexican-Americans, as large as the population is, and as marginalized as we are, we are in better position than our Central American brothers and sisters. And the reason that is, they are the same size, like say Salvadorans are the exact same size as Cuban-Americans, but they have nowhere near the same political power. They have no senators, they have nobody in the U.S. House, they have very few elected officials, even in small races across the country. Same with Guatemalans, right? We have one person of Guatemalan descent in the House. We have one person of Colombian descent in the House, and we have no Honduran, right? When you lump all the Central Americans together, Salvadoran, Guatemalan, Hondurans, they're larger than Cuban Americans, but have nowhere near the power. And sometimes we can get defensive when when Central Americans challenge Mexican Americans and say, Look, man, there's too much Mexican hegemony here, right? We want some power, too. We deserve a seat at the table. And a lot of times Mexican-Americans are fighting their own battle, and they say, hey, wait a minute. We're, you know, we, we don't have anything. See, this is a battle of the politics of fighting over crumbs. But where those fights are are not necessarily in the national scene. They're in your, seat, they're in your races for school board. They're in your races for city council seats. They're in your races for uh, the board of trustees. They're the smaller races where you can have you have some movement of Central Americans. Where there is cooperation, we see the uh, influx of children, the surge, and we're seeing it now. Mexican-Americans along the border are organizing. They're, they're the front lines of organizing and offering um, temporary protections for Central American temporary housing, and have been the most outspoken. Central American immigrant activists have been very vocal in places like Los Angeles. If you look up Rob Lovato's book, he argued very aggressively, not only against mm-hmm. former President Trump, but also against former President Obama. Right? And, they ha- and, and he has some valid points that he brings up that are very painful and being critical of Mexican-Americans. So, you know, as, with great power and great numbers comes great responsibility, right? Like what Spider-Man said. But I would say in, in that context, if you throw Dominicans in there who, have, who are mm-hmm. also from the Caribbean, but, but having very different access to citizenship than Cuban-Americans. In fact, in fact, many come undocumented. You only have one Dominican-American in the House, right? And they're the same size as Cuban-Americans, and they're having to deal with another uh, double whammy, is that many of them are, can trace their roots from the African diaspora, right? They are black. So you have black Latinos. Uh, and black Latinos, as we know in media, are marginalized. When we talk about Latinos, the idea of a black Dominican does not come up the image because we have our own fights with colorism. And yes, that involves Mexican-Americans. We have an anti-black past that we need to confront and confront it head on. And that, we, we're not even talking about African-Americans. We're talking about anti-blackness within our own. And until we address that, when we raise our hands and scream about disparity or lack of political power, we risk being hypocritical if we don't address the fundamental disparities that we benefit from and that we are able to transmit. That needs to be confronted as well. And we got Hermano Russell Contreras breaking down some facts. I'm proud that Nuestra Palabra Latino writers having their say and Latino politics and news has been dealing with with these issues you know we're at a point right now especially in national media where you cannot ignore latinos anymore you have to cover them you have to discuss the nuances nuances that invoke these communities you can't lump us all in there and then all of a sudden at the last minute say well latinos are not a model right we're not even the same groups we got to have mexican-american voices at the table we need mexican-american journalists on these shows breaking down these issues and you need Mexican-American political activists on both sides of the aisle. Because let's, be, let's face it, if there is more empowerment for Mexican-American voters and Central American voters, I may add, they may come to decisions that you and I disagree with. 
But you know what? You got to meet the voters where they are. You got to have them whatever experiences are. Right now, the data shows that if you get more Mexican Americans voting, they mean lean, they may lean Democratic, but they're moderate. These aren't. You know, a lot, a lot, I know a lot of activists want everybody to come out the womb with the fist in the air. <laughs> in the air. That's not happening. Right? It, it, everybody's experiences. Right now, uh, Mexican Americans are one of the fastest growing a number of evangelicals in the United States. They're also one of the fastest growers of devotees of Santa Muerte. So we don't know <laughs> where the balls are balls <laughs> in the court. We don't know how it's going to end up. But you know what? It's really not for us to decide. We are here to cover the community. We're here to interact with them. You have to engage. You have to educate them and let everything falls where it's supposed to fall. Man, we've been talking to our very own product of Houston, Texas, Russell Contreras over at Axios, opening the mind of the nation. Continued success, hermano, and look forward to talking to you soon. Thanks for calling into Latino Politics and News. Anything for you, brother Antonio. Baby, ya yo me enteré, se nota cuando me ve. Ahí donde no has llegado, sabes que yo te llevaré. Y dime qué quieres beber, es que tú eres mi bebé. Y de nosotros quién va a hablar, si no nos dejamos ver. Yo soy Dolce, yo soy vulgar, y cuando te lo quito, después te lo paro. Y las copas de vino, las libras de Mari. Bien suelta, yo de safari, tú me ves el culo fenomenal, pa' yo devorarte como animal. Si no te has venido, yo te voy a esperar, en mi camino lo voy a celebrar. Baby, a ti no me pongo, y siempre te lo pongo. Y si tú me tiras, vamos a nadar el hondo. Si por mí te lo pongo, de septiembre hasta agosto. A mis cincones, lo que digan tu amiga, ya yo me enteré. Siempre te lo pongo, te lo pongo. Y si tú me tiras, vamos a nadar en lo hondo. Si por mí te lo pongo, de septiembre hasta agosto. Y a mis cinco lo que digan tu amiga, ya yo me enteré. new set of bylaws, which members will vote on, is available for review on Pacifica.org. The proposed bylaws would change the structure and size of the Pacific National Board, change how its directors are elected, with national board elections occurring every three years. The current board will be terminated, and four pre-selected directors will become the transition officers for three years. The local station boards would become community advisory boards and would no longer elect directors to sit on the national board. You will have the opportunity to vote on the proposed bylaws for 30 days, beginning June 7th, if you have contributed $25 or performed three hours of volunteer work between April 8th, 2020 and April 7th, 2021. Visit elections.pacifica.org for more information. Thank you so much for listening to Houston's Community Station, 90.1 KPFT-FM, and FM HD1, Houston. Picture yourself driving home listening to a great story or a song or a discussion. 
Suddenly, you find yourself parked, but rather than turn the radio off, you stay in your car to hear what you're listening to to the end. That's called a driveway moment. A driveway moment? Yes, it's that moment that you just can't get out of the car because what you're hearing is just that good. Then hey, what better place to support KPFT? KPFT features music, news, and talk that is so compelling people will do anything to hear the end of it. If you're in your car right now and have your cell phone with you, as soon as you pull in, give a call to our membership department at 